Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again in Palmerston North, New Zealand by the Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church. Ian, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for having me, Brent. It's a pleasure as always. Now, Ian, today we're back in the Gospel of Mark looking at chapter 5 verses 1 to 20. Now, what did we learn last time about who Jesus is? So we saw Jesus calm the storm. And what do we see there? We, Jesus is really revealing who he is. He's God. Uh, and sit, sitting in a boat with some other guys. <laughs> it's kind of a, this beautiful moment, isn't it, where this is God come to earth. You described this particular passage in chapter 5 as a match-up between two people who are going to have a fight. Now, what did you mean by that? We've got Jesus who's just calmed this storm kind of coming to this new region uh, and the way that the, this person is described is just kind of go, Mark goes over the top in describing who he is, what, what he's like and uh, the things that he's done. Uh, this is kind of like this kind of monster, you know, kind of sitting in the tombs waiting for Jesus to come to fight him and it's this kind of match-up going on. Yes, yeah, so someone who's been very dehumanised by evil and um, by life really. In what sense is this a passage about a spiritual fight between good and evil then? Well, you, you, there's definitely, you know, kind of so much around that. You've got the, the scene, it's in a set, like kind of almost like a cemetery, like amongst the tombs. Mm. Um, you've got this uh, demonic figure, kind of legion, kind of sitting, you know, kind of against coming up against Jesus. You've got all of these things going on that kind of sounds like this kind of big spiritual battle about to happen. Yeah, it's a bit like Star Wars, isn't it? They, they come, um, we're coming into the Gentile territory, so... Uh, Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5, I'll read it. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Now, Ian, what's the significance of the location here? Well, it's it's pure Gentile territory. So they're outside of Israel. Uh, only, you know, kind of there would be no Jewish people living in this area or, you know, if there were, it would be very, very few. Uh, and so it's kind of this unclean place. This is the, the, big, the big thing is that it's, they're going into an unclean area. And look at how unclean it is. You've got tombs. You know, Jewish people didn't generally hang around in tombs because if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. Uh, and so you've got all, all of these things going on about it. It's kind of, it's uncleanness. Who is this man and what's his problem? Well, he's clearly possessed by something. And because you look at verse four, look at the, the way, well, even verse three, he lives in the tombs. No one can bind him, not even with a chain. Verse four, uh, he'd been chained hand and forward, but he keeps breaking the chains. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And then you've got this also, verse 5, he's crying out and cutting himself. He's just kind of this debased man, you know, kind of that. It's just all of these things to describe him, particularly his strength. Mm. To what degree has this man been rendered? He's described almost as subhuman, isn't he? I think so, yeah. yeah. How, has he been, how has he been reduced to this state? Well, I think this is what evil does to us, is that it, and this is what Satan is interested in doing, is making you less human. And that's what sin ultimately does to us, you know, kind of, it, it makes us less than we're meant to be. And God is in the, in the business of restoring our, our true humanity, and we see our true humanity 
perfectly presented in in who Jesus is. And here you have this is what it means to be kind of uh, overtaken by evil. Yeah, how is he presented in the passage as a frightening character? Because I imagine if you came across this chap in the, in the middle of the night, he would be rather alarming. Well, you kind of think that there's probably, you know, the town kids go out, you know, kind of sneak <laughs> out of the village and go down to have a look. Because was a, there was a little town uh, not far away from here. And so you've got them, kind of, you know, kind of sneaking out and having, having a little look at this guy. And everyone, everyone knows who he is and kind of, you know, looks at him from afar and kind of hears him crying out and all that type of stuff. It would be extremely frightening, I think. Yeah, I think it would be too. Uh, Verses 6 to 13, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, pigs being associated with Gentiles, I suppose. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Okay, Ian, what's the man's response when he sees Jesus? Well, he runs and falls down before Jesus, which is interesting whether that's kind of a a response of worship or not, I'm not 100% sure about that, but it seems to be, I I think. He sees Jesus and he kind of has to come and kind of bow down before him. How does the man try and gain control over Jesus? Because he does really, doesn't he? Yeah, verse 7 is particularly, um, kind of. he's he's trying to do that. And this was uh, uh, something in the ancient world that you would do. You would uh, kind of say very loudly the person's name and that would be an opportunity to kind of... And they would do this with demons and this was particularly in uh, Jewish uh, kind of religious people would, would do this around uh, demon-possessed people is that you would say in a very commanding, loud, commanding voice the, the demon's name or the person's name and that would uh, ga- gain control over the you know that being so you could can, kind of control them. Who do the evil spirits call Jesus and why do they call him that? It's really interesting, isn't it? What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Which is, I just, you know, kind of interestingly... Isn't That's that, interesting, but it's a Gentile name for God. And isn't, yeah, because isn't that uh, what um, Melchizedek... Yes, he, yes, Melchizedek is called a priest of God Most High. Yeah. Which is a Gentile, the Gentile name in the Old Covenant, the prom, one of the primary Gentile names for God. Yeah, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't know... You know specifically, if you know, I hadn't, of, I hadn't picked that up until he just mentioned it. Now. Yeah, I just think I just thought mm. that was, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Mm. Uh, there, but you know, he, he tries to call Jesus by his by his right name, doesn't he? Mm. You know, whether he's forced to do that or he's in recognition, understanding who Jesus is. Yeah. Why does Jesus respond in the way he does there in verse nine? Well, isn't it isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't do what you expect. You know, he doesn't do the loud voice. He doesn't engage in the battle in the way that you would think. He just kind of calmly asks him, what is your name? Well, I think there's kind of a sense, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's a sense of Jesus kind of, yes, there is the, the difference between kind of power and authority. You know, this guy tries to use his power over Jesus, but Jesus, with all of his authority, just kind of gets in underneath and says, what is your name? You know, kind of calling it out for what it is. Mm. How does Jesus demonstrate power and complete control over creation here? We saw last time uh, that he commanded 
creation and the, the, the wind and the waves to cease. But what is, how does Jesus demonstrate power and control over creation here? Well, he just you know, kind of with a word again, he's just speaking with the, the demons and he's able to, to kind of have control over them with his, with his word, you know, with the word. Where last year was over the physical, last week we saw it was over the physical creation and this time we see it's over the spiritual creation as well. Why is the man defeated by a very simple question? There seems to be no comeback about this, does there? No. Look, in verse 10, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Like, it's just kind of like, it's quite random, isn't it? I, I, don't, I couldn't work out why, why that would be the case. Don't know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of, you've got this whole kind of build up to this big fight about to happen. And then Jesus just asks him, what's your name? And it's just kind of like, oh, it's over. You know, it's, it's mm. done. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, my next question was why, why are we told that the evil spirits don't want to be sent out of the area? But I, I, I don't a, know. Yeah, it's a, it really. I think that's a really interesting detail. And, unless it's some idea of uh, these are territorial, these are the spiritual powers that have some kind of power over that particular yeah, territory. I maybe, I don't, mm. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, let's come on to this, the, some of the other fascinating things about this passage, which always have always fascinated me. What's significant about the fact that the demons are sent into the herd of pigs? Well, the pigs being unclean as well. Um, and so you've got this kind of mounting kind of uncleanness going on, don't you? you kind of in the Gentile area, in the tombs, you're this guy just kind of very debased and you know, possessed. Uh, and then pigs were unclean for, for Israel. They weren't allowed to touch them. They weren't allowed to be around them. Would first century hearers or readers of Mark have associated the legion with Roman armies? Now, this is something that I emailed you about over the weekend. Yeah. I had some thoughts. Well, I was reading something. I can't remember who it was on the internet, but I wonder when I read this, I thought legion. That's interesting. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a Gentile, like a, it's a Roman kind of word, isn't it? How many, how many were in the legion? Well, I think uh, when I when I looked it up, because I wondered why Mark mentioned there were about two thousand pigs. Yeah. I, I I've never been able to work out why Mark would include and tell us how many pigs there are, as though. Well, I, so, but and then I did some research. Someone suggested, and I wish I could remember who it was. I should have written it down because the word legion, any Jewish hearer or reader would have thought of the legion and a Roman army because they were under Roman occupation yeah, at this time. Yeah. And uh, the size of the uh, the number of soldiers in a Roman legion in Jesus' day, the scholars reckon anywhere between about three and 6,000, or it could have yeah. been smaller than that or larger than that. So is the number 2,000 significant? Yes. Uh, if you think about it, then Jesus, the true king of Israel, dispatches the demons into the pigs who are associated with Gentiles anyway, who plunge to their deaths. So the Roman army is driven out of Israel by Israel's true king. And the number of pigs, about 2,000, would be a little bit under the normal size of a Roman legion. I wonder whether it's connected. I don't yeah, know. I don't know either. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, there's some interesting detail in there, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So uh, chapter 5, verses 14 to 20. Oh, sorry, one other sorry, thing. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, it's a large herd of pigs. I've never tried to herd. I've, I've had a few pigs in my day. I've never tried to herd pigs, but it's not easy. <laughs> so they must have. There's a special art to it, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Pigs tend to have minds of their own, yeah, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah, they do. Verses fourteen. We used to have to feed the pigs as kids, and I used to. I had a friend at school who they kept pigs, and um, an unpleasant job feeding pigs. I never used to enjoy it very much, but there we go. We had to do it, or we did it. Uh, fourteen to twenty. 
the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came out to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, okay, how do the people respond then to Jesus' exorcism? They're afraid. Just just like, you know, kind of, the disciples were afraid of Jesus' command over the storm. And now they're afraid of Jesus. These people are afraid of Jesus' command over this man. Mm. Why are they afraid? Well, you think about it, that here is this man who no one has been able to restrain. And Mark is at pains to tell us, you know, kind of people are chaining him, but he just keeps breaking them. He says it more than once, kind of about that, that kind of detail. Uh, and here is a man who's just been able, with a word, just been able, able to, to heal him and just kind of, undo all of that that kind of stuff surely this guy is very powerful we need to be very afraid of him mm. why should we be afraid of jesus in the right sense of being afraid well it's because of who he really is he is god you know kind of come to earth so what you know of course we should be because it's it's got but it's not afraid in terms of let's run away and hide which is what they want to do it's afraid is is in we should have awe and respect for actually who he is who this person is come to earth yeah i always find these accounts in the gospels deeply ironic you know the lord jesus comes he does magnificent work he heals people he fixes situations that nobody else can and everyone says no, that's lovely could you go now please yeah. we've, we've seen enough thank you <laughs> you yeah. know <laughs> yeah, I don't. yeah. How, how does fear lead to faith at the end of the account then? I think it's so beautiful, isn't it, about um, what happens with this man. You know, kind of, you've, got, you've got him totally debased. And what does Jesus do? He rehumanizes him. Mm-hmm. You know, he, kind of, he brings him out of the, his debasement and makes him human again. I think this is such a kind of a beauty around that. What does he do? He he's told by he tries to he tries to get in the boat with Jesus firstly, which is which is kind of just beautiful. But Jesus tells him, "Go home to your family, tell them how much the Lord has done for you." Notice that it says the Lord rather than mm-hmm. what Jesus has done, and how he has had mercy on you. What does the man do? He goes and does the opposite. This happens so much in Mark, where someone someone goes and Jesus says, "Hey." Go and do this, and someone goes, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else." You know, don't, don't talk about me. Basically, what Jesus often says. Um, look at what the man does. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. What was the Decapolis? So the Decapolis is I mean, a Decapolis being ten, oh, ten cities. Ten cities. So there was a region there with ten cities around, and they they think that that. But when during Acts, when the the gospel kind of came up into that that area, that there were people already kind of already believing in Jesus, not knowing what he had done, kind of so that this man, his work had already gone gone forth in kind of doing some of the work, so the gospel could come and um, and kind of take root in that area. So he becomes the proto evangelist to the Gentiles even, in a sense, even though he doesn't know all of what Jesus is going to do and kind mm. of you know in the future. But yeah, yeah, you're right. 
How are the story and the one preceding it about the storm, both about fear and faith? Well, well, both of them. You have, you know, you've got the disciples afraid first of the of what's outside of the boat, then what's inside the boat. Uh, then here you've got uh, the the people around Jesus. You know, kind of the the Gentiles in this area. First, they're afraid of the man, and now they're afraid of Jesus. But this man himself, you know, kind of he represents this kind of perfect little picture, I think, of someone who has come to faith in Jesus. But he's a Gentile. This is, I think, one of the, the one of the interesting little details in Mark that it's the unexpected people are the ones that have faith in in Mark. Yeah, those on the right outside of society. This guy's completely. Uh, he's the ultimate outsider. He's Gentile. He's been demon possessed. He's been living in the tombs. He's totally unclean. Mm. He's not only unclean in the sense of being estranged from. Uh, Jewish people, no one wants to be around him, you know, not even the other Gentiles in the area. And what do you have? He's the one who comes to faith in Jesus. And he's the one who accepts Jesus and wants to go with him and be with him when it, all the so-called normal, in inverted commas, people tell Jesus to get lost. And even the disciples, you know, what does Jesus just ask them in the previous chapter, in the previous little bit? He said, do you not understand who I am? You know, kind of. Well, this guy certainly does. Do you not have faith? Mm. They're kind of still working out who Jesus is. This mm. guy wants to get in the boat with Jesus because he doesn't. He won't. What doesn't want to let Jesus go? Yeah, yeah it's a marvelous story, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. In what sense is the man presented to us as a new and restored Adam? Then. Well, you've got. Yeah. You know, what does Jesus do? You know, kind of. He he is remaking the man, isn't he? You know, kind of. You've got him debased by sin and he's remade into this kind of figure and what is he what does he do he goes and kind of does kind of the the work of the, of the kingdom you know kind of out in these out in this gentle area uh, how do we land the story if i can put it like that in terms of how you know kind of for us personally mm-hmm. well i think look at jesus here you know kind of you know be amazed at, at who he is what he's done and what he is doing. And I think also that if we feel, you know, it is easy for us to feel like this man in, in a sense that debased by our lives, debased by our sin, there is no one who is far enough away to get away from Jesus, you know, basically, that there is no one, you know, this is what Mark is doing. He's showing how awful this man was, but God's power has broken through into his life. By the word of Jesus, you know, mm. kind of just just the word, and even the, the I think that 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 the the way that he talks to Jesus, kind of the the kind of you know the interaction there is just is is interesting. That Jesus treats him like a human being and kind of res- restores him to, to to full humanity, and this is what Jesus wants for all of us. Yeah, it's it's I, it's, I think it's an amazing account. In in what senses are we all distorted and debased by sin and depravity then? Well, I, I just think that this is what sin does. It, it makes us less human than, than we should be. Uh, and that's, that's God's ultimate goal for all of us is to rehumanize us, to make us more like Jesus. And so th- this is what sin does. It turns us in on ourselves. It, it, it distorts us. It bends us. Uh, and, you know, the... None of us like that, you know. Kind of, even though we love sin, <laughs> kind of thinking that it's going to it's going to solve all our problems. We think it's going to uh, actually bring fulfilment and satisfaction, but it never does. It just makes us more and more bent. Uh, it makes us more, you know, kind of less human. It estranges us from, from 
you know, other from other people around us as well. But what does Jesus do? He does the opposite. He restores us. Uh, he creates new community. He does all of these types of things. Uh, and that is what full restoration, but also that's where we find joy, find contentment and satisfaction as well. Mm. Uh, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand, thank you once again for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Ian, thank you so much. Thanks for having me again, Brent. Pleasure as always. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.